wrap up Saturday. Um, wrap up Saturdays are, rev- are is reserved for uh, pretty much anything I want to talk about. And usually I will summarize what we've covered throughout the week. And sometimes it's just almost like a free-for-all Saturday where I just want to talk about whatever I want to talk about. Uh, it's my podcast, so I kind of get to make that call. Today is going to be a little bit of both. This last week we finished up uh, um, Second Thessalonians and we went to Acts chapter 19 where uh, Paul moves on to Ephesus. Um, if I were to wrap up First and Second Thessalonians in a nutshell, I mean, if I were to sign one statement to each book, it would be something like First Thessalonians, um, the day of the Lord is coming. Second Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness is the trigger event for the day of the Lord, and he hasn't showed up yet. Um, now, that's, that is an oversimplification because Paul covers lots, lots of ground in this, these two letters. What's amazing to me, especially in light of the letter we're getting ready to go look into, uh, we're going to be starting on 1 Corinthians soon, as soon as we finish up Acts chapter 19. We might have finished up. Did we finish it up? I can't remember. But when we get to 1 Corinthians next week, um, you're going to find that that church is an absolute hot mess. But 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church, Paul's biggest concern was he wanted to make sure that they were okay with under the pressure of the persecution that had come their way. Paul might not have been the most publicly gifted speaker of all time. That problem might go to some that title might go to someone like Apollos, who's a very gifted orator. But Paul was a very powerful speaker in that uh, I, I don't imagine him ever getting bested in an argument or a debate. And debate was at the heart and soul of much of the Jewish faith. Uh, I was doing some reading this last week about uh, a rabbi who had been very, very, very close friends with another rabbi. And I can't remember the names. This happened so long ago. But they were very well known for their tit-for-tat debates on things biblical. And they both reveled in the challenge that the other one brought to the table when they would discuss things of biblical nature. And um, when one of them, when the older one of the two died, passed away, another revered rabbi would come and listen to the rabbi that was left from that pair uh, discuss scripture. And he would say things like, yes, rabbi so-and-so writings agree with you. And finally, in one of the uh, one of the first rabbis, uh, after his discussions, he yelled at that other rabbi and said, is that all you bring? Rabbi, whatever the other, the dead rabbi's name was, he would find 14 arguments 
against any point I was making. And all you can say is Rabbi so-and-so agrees with me. Got him upset. Debate was an important part of the Jewish religious community. Um, Paul would be well-versed in that. And Paul, his first thing to do is always to go to the synagogue and argue that Jesus was the Christ. And he would always start there and then they eventually, they'd get mad at him and he'd leave and go out into the Gentile community. There's a twofold pattern to Paul's plan. There would be God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue. And they would follow him. They were his. So the synagogue was Paul's hook, believe it or not, into the Gentile community. Which I think was kind of kind of a good, pretty much of a genius move on Paul's part. He would go to the Jews, into the synagogues, and the God-fearing Jews would follow Paul, follow Paul out of the synagogue. And that would be the core of his group of Gentile believers. Well, that would probably cause jealousy and anger from the part of the synagogue. And that appears to be what started Paul's problems in Thessalonica. Um, they went, the Jewish religious community went and found thugs and folks down at the waterfront and formed a mob and chased Paul out of Thessalonica and Berea. And he goes down to Athens. Then he goes to Corinth. And it's while he's in Corinth that he sends a letter back to the Thessalonican church uh, because he was concerned about their uh, consistency in the faith in the face of persecution. And uh, so that's ba that's basically the first letter. The first letter is, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're not crumbling under the persecution. And, uh, and then he reminds them that there is a day of the Lord coming. And God will take care of all those who persecute you. Now, some of those people got it in their minds that the day of the Lord had already come and passed. Now, I don't know if it's something that they misunderstood in what Paul was saying or if it was this was just nonsense stirred up by those who were persecuting Paul who were trying to defame him and hurt his credibility. But anyway, some people were convinced that the day of the Lord had come and they had missed out. I get that. So the second th later letter that he writes to them tags on to that, the day of the Lord message. But he says... The day of the Lord's coming, yeah, but the man of lawlessness must come first. And here's what he looks like. So he explains to them about the man of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness will precede the second coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And in essence, he's telling them, look, this hasn't happened yet. You haven't missed the day of the Lord. Another concern they had was, what about those of us who die before the day of the Lord? Are they going to miss out on the second coming of the Lord? Again, you have to realize that part of that society, they believed that uh, death was a, just a cessation of, of existence. Blackness, darkness, poof, gone. 
No, Paul was saying, no, there is life after life. There's life after this life. There's life after death. And when the Lord comes back, those who have died in him will rise up out of the ground and meet him in the air and then we'll meet him there as well. So it's, so First Thessalonians, the day of the Lord's coming. Second Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness must precede the day of the Lord. Got it. Now, that's my summary of First and Second Thessalonians, and that's my takeaway. Uh, I think I've told you this before. I had a pastor who discipled me for a time, and uh, he had me write out my testimony, and I did. He had me read my testimony to him, and I did. Uh, he had me share my testimony without reading it. it took about 30 minutes. I can be rather long-winded. Then he said, all right, now share, give me your testimony in 15 minutes. Cut it in half. And I did. Then he said, give me your testimony in five minutes. And I did. Then he said, you and I are on an elevator. We have one minute. Tell me your testimony in one minute. And what he was getting me to do was to drill down to the most essential elements of my testimony. What was it about my testimony that was so important that people needed to hear? So I have this tendency uh, since then of whenever I listen to a lecture and I want to talk to somebody about it afterwards, I have a a 10-minute version, a 5-minute version, and a 1-minute version that covers what I just heard. And I call that my takeaway. So my takeaway from 1 Thessalonians is I'm glad you're doing okay with the persecution that's going on around you. And by the way, the day of the Lord is coming. Second Thessalonians. The day of the Lord hasn't come because a man of lawlessness hasn't shown up yet. Be comforted. Then he gives some practical instruction about how to live. Paul always does that. But that triggered some thoughts in my mind. And it's uh, it's funny. I had a conversation with uh, myself, I always talk to myself when I'm on my way to church to teach uh, music lessons or to play on church on, on Sundays. I talk with myself and I talk with God in my cars. 30 minutes and God and I flesh things out. And the other day I'm driving and the thought occurred to me that I really can't wait to see him. I've never seen him. You know, the God that you and I worship, we've never seen. Oh, we've, it, it, in, we say we see him in the stars and we see him in the, the, the beauty of the earth around us. Yes, I, I get that. But we have never seen the one that we worship. We have never touched the hem of his garment. We have never we're the Thomases of the world. You know, when, when, Thomas, is, when Thomas said, uh, uh, I won't believe he's resurrected until I can touch him, touch the wounds in his hands. And Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, touch, here. He said, Thomas, blessed are you because you see and believe. Blessed are those 
who don't see and yet still believe. Well, that's us. I'm one of those who believes and yet has never seen him. And when I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure a couple years back, didn't know where that was going. I didn't know if I was on death's door, and I'm not. Didn't know if I was going to die soon. I didn't. Um, it makes me, it, it caused me to question what I believe. And, and you know, and I do that on a regular basis anyway. I'm always checking in on me. What do you believe? Why do you believe this? Is there any reason to not believe? And I always come up with, what do I believe? I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth, and in his son, the Lord, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, died on a cross, raised on the third day. I believe that. Ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me. That's what I believe. That hasn't changed. But there's part of me that longs for the day and it became much more of a longing when I thought maybe the day my day was approaching a couple years ago. I long for the day when I will close my eyes here and I open my eyes there. I long to see the Lord. And I'm willing to stay as long as I need to on this planet. But there will come a day when I will close my eyes here and open my eyes there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. Now, forgive me if this sounds a little bit morbid, but when a doctor sticks his head in the room and says that uh, you have congestive heart failure, this is the direction your thoughts tend to go sometimes. It makes you wonder, have I lived my life? Have I lived my life well? Is this world changed because I was in it? Those kind of things. And that's so that's where my mind has been this last several years. And when I read about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians, when he comes back, I get excited. I can't wait. What an incredible day that's going to be. When I read about... Uh, When I read about the, the the birth of Jesus in the manger, what an amazing day that was. To be one of those shepherds that saw him for the first time. To be Anna, who had been promised that she would see the Messiah before she died in the temple. <laughs> to be Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. To be Joseph, had an angel appear to him to tell him what to do about this little girl named Mary who is pregnant with God the Father's son. I get excited. The Bible is more real to me now than it's ever been. I've I've had a couple of dreams over the years and I remember the very first dream I had where God cemented in my heart the truth of his gospel. 
in my dream, I was walking towards a designated place that I was supposed to be at. And I knew that Jesus was coming. I just knew. And I get to my place and I'm looking at the eastern sky. You know how dreams are. They're very surreal. In my dream, this was very surreal. And I knew I was looking at the eastern sky. And there was a light beginning to appear there. But it was it wasn't like a shining light. It was like, you know how plastic gets when you stretch it really, really tight and it gets white before it snaps and breaks? That's what it looked like, like somebody stretching the sky out like that. And in my mind, these numbers are going by 10, 9, 8, and it's counting down. And as it counts down towards 1, I'm getting more and more excited because I know that at that spot in the eastern sky that Jesus is going to show up, who I'd never seen. And it gets down to two, then one. And I am at a level of excitement that absolutely cannot be duplicated. And it hit zero and the sky exploded and I woke up. I was a little disappointed because I thought the Lord was coming back for real. But I woke up from that dream realizing the depth of the change in my heart that the Holy Spirit had affected. It wasn't long prior to that when I wasn't a believer because I was a new believer at that time. When I didn't care, I could not have cared less about the gospel, the word, the Lord, anything related to God. And here I was dreaming about him coming back and being raised to a fever pitch of excitement because in my dream, I was going to see him finally. Later on, I had another dream years later. And in that dream, I just come back from Russia on a missionary trip. And I had had my heart broken on that trip in the sense that the Christians I met in Russia were, they were amazing. Their strength, their conviction. They were under persecution. Uh, The government didn't like them, does not like evangelical Christianity over there. And yet they were so full of joy. And they were so full of purpose. Uh, I came home being totally humbled and I was praying one day. And I sometimes I'll fall asleep. I'll take a nap when I pray. I think that's what happened. Can't really be sure, but if I remember correctly, that's what happened. And had a dream, if you will. And in my dream, I'm standing in the crowds of millions, and a crowd of millions in front of the throne. And way off in the distance is the throne, and Jesus is sitting on the throne. Now, it's funny. I see his face in my dream. But when I wake up, I can't remember what he looks like. I'm assuming he's Jewish. But it is that day of judgment that we read about in Matthew 6, 7, and 8 where he's a well done, good and faithful servant moment. And he's calling people out. And my head is bowed and I'm weeping in my dream because I really don't feel like I belong there because I just come back from Russia and realized 
how materialistic and self-centered my life was. And I was sad that I didn't have time to straighten that out. And I'm standing in front of him for judgment. And I just, I don't belong there. And I hear him call my name. And I don't lift my head up. I'm weeping. There's tears running down my face. I hear him call my name. I don't lift my head up. Then he says with a sharper voice, sharper tone of his voice, Paige! I look up. And he's in front, and I'm in front of his throne, and he's pointing off to his right, my left. And I see my son, and next to him is a woman, his wife. Now, my son wasn't married at the time, but next to him was a, was a wife. And behind them were generations of believers. Now, you have to realize, my family uh, hasn't had many Christians in it. And... I'm seeing behind my son generation after generation after generation of believers. And Jesus was going, well done. Then he points over to his left, my right. And I see my daughter and her husband. Now they have a very particular ministry of blessing people. And uh, I'm not going to talk much about it because it's kind of on the down low. But they minister to people and they bless people and they're surrounded by thousands of people that they have touched, whose lives they have touched and changed. And Jesus goes, well done. And I wake up realizing that with all my faults and with all my defects, personal defects that I see in my life, I raised a godly son. I raised a godly daughter. And Jesus thinks that's well done. I was comforted. Now, I had one more dream. Now, dreams are kind of funny. They're kind of silly. Uh, this one was, in a sense. Um, I was in a big church, a big mega church, and I was heading to a conference room because I had an appointment with Jesus. In my dream, I had an appointment with Jesus. And... <laughs> It seemed very serious and real in my dream, but and now I just it's just so dumb. I go to a conference. I find my conference room. I go in and sit down, and there's three or four other people there with me, and we're waiting. And Jesus comes into the room again. I see his face, but after I wake up from this dream, I can't remember what he looks like. But he comes in and he sits down with the person across the table from me, and there's some murmuring, soft speaking. I don't hear what's being said. And uh, Jesus touches them on the head and prays with them and gets up and goes to the next person. Now, this happens a couple times. And he finally gets to me. And he takes my hands in his and looks me in the eye. And he bows his head to pray, but he doesn't say anything. He's praying silently. And I am overwhelmed with a sense of peace absolute joy that I have never before or since experienced. And I wake up in that state. So I am, I'm thoroughly convinced by the word that Jesus is coming back. I'm thoroughly convinced by the word that I am safe in him. And I'm thoroughly convinced by the word 
that I have a purpose and a place in this world until the day that I die. And my dreams have given me that emotional reassurance that this isn't a game. I'm not being played. That there is a very real God who loves and cares and has a place prepared for me. Oh yeah, that is the last dream. In my last dream, I died. And they say you don't come back from those, so apparently that's not true because here I am, right? And in that dream, an angel comes to take me to the place that Jesus has prepared for me. And we're walking through an alpine meadow, forest with widely spaced trees. There's a creek. little lake. I can hear the loon in the distance. And there's this beautiful cabin, big porch. I love big porches. And he, the angel, opens up the cabin door and ushers me in. I go inside and there's this huge interior of this cabin, rough-hewn walls, broad beams, fireplace, big fire in it. And over to the right, leaning up against the wall, was this amazing guitar. And I'm reaching for that guitar when I wake up. I don't base my theology or what I think upon my dreams. To me, they're confirmations of what the Word says. I haven't found anything in those dreams that contradict what the Word says, and if I did, I dismiss the dream. The Thessalonians were told that the Lord will be coming back. And they were excited about that. And then they were they were saddened because they thought they had missed it. And Paul was writing to them and saying, you haven't missed anything. The man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. When he comes back, that's when the day of the Lord it will be. So, what's my point in wrap-up Saturday? I know it's kind of disjointed. kind of I'm just rambling, rambling on. But I just want you to know that if you're a believer listening to this, that what we believe, it's true. I read, when I was getting my master's degree in composition, I read through the creed, the Apostles' Creed. And it so beautifully sums up what I believe. I believe in the Father. Makers of heaven and earth. And in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin. Raised from the dead. Sitting at the right hand of the father. Mm, There is joy unspeakable and full of glory in those words. And I hope those are words that you can say. If you are not a believer and you're a friend of mine listening to this, or maybe you don't even know me from Adam's house cat, know this. There's a God who cares. There's a God who knows. There's a God who sees. There's a God who loves. Bow your knee to him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. That's what he does best. He's a God who reveals himself. Do 
due diligence. Ask God to show you, and he will find a way to show you that means something to you. He will reveal himself. He will not hide himself from those who seek him. So seek him. If you're a believer, ah, there's a glorious future that awaits for us. Well, with that, ladles and jelly spoons, wrap up Saturday's over. I hope you have a fabulous week. Next week, we finish up Acts 19, and then we are going to be hitting 1 Corinthians. That church, like I said, they were a hot mess. This is Mr. G, and I am out of here.